We are going to talk more about uh, what is happening with the uh, SNC-Lavalin debacle, I suppose you could uh, call it. But how did we even get to this place uh, in the first place? Well, Tristan Hopper is a writer with the National Post, and he has written about this and the fact that uh, we need to go back to 2006 to really see what happened then, which led to what is happening now. Tristan, thanks for joining us again. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Uh, So walk us through, because this has a lot to do uh, with the Harper government. Walk us through what you wrote about. Yeah. So basically, the whole reason we've heard about lab scam is because of a 13-year-old measure put in by the Conservatives specifically to catch future liberal scandals. Um, so back in 2006, so this is right after the sponsorship scandal. Um, so that's the main re- a big reason why the Conservatives were elected. So the first thing the new Conservative minority government did uh, was to implement, um, it was called the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. Now, one of the reasons the sponsorship scandal uh, was able to get so scandally um, is because in the old days, um, it, Public prosecutions in Canada um, were completely um, under the control of the Attorney General, who, of course, is an elected official, it's a member of cabinet, it's an MP. So um, one of the things that happened during the sponsorship scandal is, you know, there's a bunch of people up on charges, um, but some of those some of those charges weren't being pressed as hard. You know, they were being dropped mysteriously in certain cases. And, you know, the the implication uh, was that the liberal attorney general at the time was just sort of, you know, toying with the wheels of justice. So what the conservatives did. And to say, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll create an independent appointed office, uh, and it's that the director of public prosecutions, and it's going to be that office's job to figure out, you know, who gets charged, who gets prosecuted, and the attorney general will still be able to override them, but if they override them, that'll have to be publicly announced. So the whole reason we found out about lab scam is because Jody Wilson-Raybould, the attorney general, uh, former attorney general, uh, didn't want to overrule this independent director of public prosecution. So if this measure had never been put in in 2006, um, it would have been much easier uh, for any attorney general to just sort of quietly hush up um, the charges against SNC-Lavalin. So because of this, uh, I mean, in her testimony, Jody Wilson-Raybould specifically said that members of the Liberal government, Jerry Butts, uh, were saying they hated this 2006 law because... It made it much harder and to hush up, uh, hush up prosecutions they didn't like. And, and when you talk about that, too, that uh, the, whatever sitting attorney general, if they overrule the director of that office, uh, like you said, it would have to be made public. Uh, is it also made public if they don't, if they go along with it? Uh, not really. So, uh, I mean, so um, you've got the so you've got the director of public prosecutions. This is an appointed position. Um, so, um, anybody who has committed a federal crime, it's this office uh, who, who has been charged by the police with a federal crime. Um, it's this office that decides. Uh, basically, whether they're going to go to trial and whether they're going to pursue these uh, these charges in court. Um, so, yeah, if if uh, I mean Jody Wilson Rebuild or any attorney general just sort of reviews the decisions that this office makes, um, and then you know usually agrees with most of them and occasionally will overrule them. Uh, so Jody Wilson Rebuild, uh, she actually did. Uh, overrule, overrule them in November. But in this particular case, um, in the SNC Lavalin case, she didn't think it was appropriate to do so. So she was being asked, I mean, according to her testimony, she was being asked by the Liberal government, hey, overrule them and, uh, you know, let's give her defer, defer an agreement uh, to SNC Lavalin. But she said, no, no, this is an independent office. They know what they're doing. They know what they, they know about prosecutions. They've looked into this and they have determined that uh, this is definitely a case that needs to proceed to trial.
And it's interesting, and you mentioned uh, the case where she has done it in the past. And I remember when there was, uh, the, the, and you write about this in your your piece on this, and that it had to do with charges against people who had had sex with people not and not disclosed their HIV positive status. I remember when that happened. What I didn't know or I'd forgotten was that that was uh, an overruling by the attorney general. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, so again, pre two thousand six. Um, you probably never would have heard about that because you would just, um, I mean, it, it's it's hard to hear about um, a case that isn't being pursued unless you're really on that case. So uh, under the new system, um, if someone, if, if she is being, if, if the director of public prosecutions is being overruled, the attorney general has to publish that in the Canada Gazette. So it, it's publicly announced. Here's why I'm overruling a decision by the public prosecutor. And here's why. So basically I am meddling in the wheels of justice, but here's why I thought that was necessary. Um, so so, you know, one reason that this happened, I mean, maybe maybe if without this 2006 law, Jody Wilson-Raybould would have done it anyway, but it would be much easier to do it without anybody noticing. Um, the, one of the reasons maybe she balked at doing it is because she would have to publicly announce um, and try and justify it publicly, which is kind of hard when you're dealing with a company that is charged of, you know, buying prostitutes for the son of Muammar Gaddafi. Um, there's not a lot of justifications you can give that they shouldn't go to court. Uh, no, exactly. Uh, it's curious too when when and, and you mentioned this that uh, there's a, a fair amount of of hatred by some people of this law that was brought in or of this office that was brought in in uh, 2006. And I guess it would just look the optics would be horrible if uh, the current uh, Liberal government tried to get rid of it or tried to as they brought in the deferral process uh, quietly on that omnibus bill if they tried to somehow get rid of this office. Oh, yeah, especially now. So, I mean, that's that's what's so remarkable about this particular story is you have the conservatives coming in 2006. The first thing they do is to pass a measure quite explicitly at the time saying when the liberals get back, here is something to stop future sponsorship scandals. And then 13 years later, that's exactly what it did. It caught a future liberal scandal. So, um, it, you know, it's rare we have common sense legislation that actually does what it's supposed to do. Um, you know, no offense to the federal government, but um, yeah. So this uh, conservatives have been very smug these last few days, and uh, I think they're right to be, um, because uh, again, not only did it do what it was supposed to do, uh, but in Rilson Raybould's uh, testimony, she specifically said that members close to Trudeau were saying this was a quote Harper law. They didn't like it, and they wanted her to you know act outside that particular law. And I had someone on Twitter pose the question, too, uh, about this, saying, uh, asking uh, if Harper had ever uh, shuffled out a, a member of his cabinet because he didn't agree with that person. And I thought it was an interesting question, but not one that really, I mean, unless it was an attorney general that was shuffled out for a similar reason, I, I'm sure it probably did happen. But it's not really a fair comparison unless we're talking about an attorney general uh, minister. Oh yeah, I'm 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 quite confident he probably shuffled out someone because he didn't agree with them. I mean that's what a whole cabinet cabinet shuffle is about. You look at your list of ministers, and you know, I'm kind of tired of looking at this person's face, so they're gone. Um, so yeah, I mean that's what a prime minister does, but uh, certainly nothing as dramatic as this uh, because initially it wasn't that big of a deal uh, that he, she had been shuffled out of the attorney general post. Uh, the only reason it became this massive Canada-wide jaw-dropping watch the news constantly scandal um, is because um, the allegation, the very compelling allegation from Wilson Raybould that the only reason she was fired from her job is because she refused to meddle politically, uh, meddle in a prosecution for political reasons.
Exactly. And I think also um, looking at it, uh, just the the way that it unfolded with the prime minister first basically calling the Globe and Mail story fake news, then saying, well, yes, something happened, but it wasn't what you're saying it was. Oh, yes, this did happen, but it's still not what you're saying. The way that unfolded, I just found, uh, I, I think I and many others were a bit gobsmacked by that. I have been calling this and I... I don't think I'd, I'll be proven wrong. This is the most cinematic federal <laughs> political scandal in Canadian history. So going all the way back to 1867, I mean, there's been bigger scandals, the Pacific scandal where the prime minister is directly taking railway bribes to build the Canadian Pacific Railway. I mean, those were bigger scandals, but none of them have had these kinds of twists and turns. So if you're just talking about a narrative arc where a liberal government is actively claiming this is lies, and then you have this denouement where the former attorney general is appearing before a justice committee and saying, Actually, all of this happened. They've been lying. This is, you know, a direct case of political. It usually doesn't happen like that. What we thought in the media when Jody Wilson-Raybould testified, we thought, well, the only reason she's testifying is because some deal has been made. You know, it's Canada. We never actually hear the truth. She's just going to give some bland testimony, and we're never going to find out what's actually happening until many years after all the participants are dead. And that didn't happen here. So this is a, a level of political drama that happens all the time in places like the UK or the United States, but we don't really see it here. Uh, no, exactly. And I think uh, I think a lot of people were expecting exactly what you just uh, described. Uh, so what do you think will be the next big turn? Will it be when uh, Gerald Butts testifies or what will be the next uh, big shocker? Oh, yeah. So uh, he's, he's, it's going to be when he testifies and maybe he'll have compelling information which sort of contradicts her story or he'll appear and, you know, completely go down in flames and, uh, you know, just screw up questions and, and not know what he's talking about. So either way, it's going to be newsworthy. Um, I mean, the risk is uh, that we've already gone through, I'm just talking about purely from a news angle. I mean, maybe we've already gone through the most exciting part, and this is going to be like the sponsorship scandal, where now it's just months and months and months of, like, in, you know, inquiry. Uh, remember the Gummering Inquiry? Every day the Gummering Inquiry happened. Nothing new was really coming out. It actually became particularly boring. So, uh, yeah. There, there could be much more revealed out of this. You could have other liberal ca- cabinet members or liberal members uh, saying, no, I, 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 I also had issues with this. So, um, yeah, this could get, uh, you know, much more revealing or uh, it could basically stay the same, but it will stay in the news anyway. All right. Uh, that is one thing uh, for sure. Uh, Tristan, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I got an email from one listener who said he does not mind being called a senior. He also doesn't mind being called an old geezer. Uh, He is in the smaller group, though, when it comes to uh, what people would like to be labeled or if they would like to be labeled at all. That's uh, according to some recent research on the topic. Uh, But right now we are going to bring in uh, somebody to talk more about this. Kevin Keene is the co-founder and CEO of uh, a company called Brain Sites, and he joins us on the line now. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, We're talking about uh, labels, uh, age people, uh, labeling people based on their age. What what is the issue, do you think, with so many people, uh, according to this uh, Ipsos Reid poll that was done uh, late last year, that don't like being called seniors? I think the issue is the connotations that are associated with seniors, the ways that seniors, quote unquote, are depicted in the media are as frail, confused, um, you know, weak, and uh, more and more of those people, they do not see themselves as that, and they are not like that. They're healthy, they're active, they're engaged, they're working, um, they're capable, and, uh, and, it, and it's, it, it's, it's on the media now to reflect that. 
Is there a particular age? It seems like that goalpost kind of changes when if we are putting somebody in the group of labeling of a senior, at what age that what age you actually go into that group? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question. I think people are struggling with that now. Traditionally, it's been sort of 65 plus, right? You might have those sort of, you know, quote unquote, golden agers. Um, but more and more people are working into that age. More and more people are not retiring until later in their life. More and more people are living, you know, the, the, the longevity of life is, is, is extended now. And so, you know, there's there's a there's a huge amount of people that are leading active lives beyond that uh, arbitrary threshold. And I think that, um, you, you know, it, what, what we're interested in is less about labeling and more about enabling. Right. And what about, uh, although it is still labeling, what about using phrases like baby boomers versus millennials or, or naming the, the generations? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's been so much talk and so much in, uh, in, in the media describing these generations as if they can be contained in, you know, like... Uh, uh, small defined categories. And, and, and of course, they, they just cover a, a, a wide range of people, a wide range of capabilities. Uh, though that being said, there, there are some common, you know, life stage and lifestyle based uh, characteristics. And, and in our research, you know, we're finding that, um, you know, boomers, so the 55 plus Canadians are rejecting those kind of standard stereotypical ways of, of, of characterizing seniors and actually more engaging with uh, things that the uh, imagery and tones and themes that they see that better reflect their life. Things like, you know, being clever, mischievous, capable, um, wise. Hmm, which are which are all seem like much better uh, descriptors than uh, than perhaps a senior or uh, elderly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's more about it's more about clever rather than elder. Right. Like it's more about, you know, wise rather than old. Right. And do you think, have we gotten to a point then that we tend to use these labels or use these phrases and terms without really thinking about how they might be received? I think so. And I think that, you know, part part of our research was really about surfacing these unconscious biases. And so, you know, what we do is we measure people's brain activity as they're consuming this media stimuli. And then we use that data that we capture to understand patterns about what drives people's attention, what do they resonate with emotionally? And then what do they encode to memory? And of course, what don't they across all those three metrics? And what we're finding is that at least for the 55 plus Canadian, they're withdrawing and rejecting and tuning out of these kind of standard, you know, depictions of seniors and old agers as frail, as weak, as, as helpless. And they're much more dialed in to, you know, depictions and, and, and characterizations of, of of clever, of, of mischievous, of, of, um, of, of wise, of transferring, you know, knowledge from one generation to another. And, and the way that, uh, that, that this generation, the boomer generation is, uh, is depicted in the, in, in, in the media is really almost anti-millennial, but actually if we, if we sought to better understand that generation and what, and what we're trying to do with this research is really, is really disseminate it and get it out there and, and, and share with people that actually, it's it's there's there's some really interesting meaningful um, age bias that we need to surface here. Uh, that's going to show that we're not all that different. And when you talk about that, that you analyze the unconscious brain activity, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do that with electroencephalography, so brainwave readers. Think of it like a Fitbit for the skull, 
right? So people put on these kind of goofy looking headsets. It's not, it's not super, like it's not invasive or anything like that. It's like, it's like, you know, no more cumbersome than a, than a set of headphones. It measures uh, electrical activity in the brain. And those are associated with specific mental states. Things like, what do I pay attention to? Things like, what am I emotionally engaging with? What am I encoding to memory? And so we're capturing that data every two milliseconds against, you know, for this study, it was over 117 pieces of content um, that, you know, is everything from ads to, you know, short clips, uh, Christmas content, that kind of stuff. And, um, and then we're basically looking at that data, analyzing that data to understand what are people engaging with at that unconscious level and, and what are they completely tuned out of? And that gives us a sense of, you know, what they value uh, what what resonates with them, and it and it actually ends up charting a path forward for how we can address things like age bias. So by looking at 300 Canadians across different age groups, we were splitting it between 55 plus Canadians and under 55s, and started to see differences in terms of what they were relating to. And we built these kind of four insights uh, that are that are part of this research that was released last week. And um, it, I mean, it's just fascinating stuff to be able to help not just marketers, but the general public better understand the unconscious age bias and ways to address it. Right. And one of those was to, to get rid of the old age stereotypes. Exactly. Exactly. Things like we, that, that we've been discussing already, right? Like, you know, the connotations around, around seniors, around aging, you know, basically looking to eradicate ageism. And, you know, one, one, one example was uh, Home Equity Bank. They had this ad called Sprinkler. And basically it was, you know, this realtor was coming to this this home of, uh, of a 55 plus Canadian couple, and they saw her coming up the steps, and uh, and they ended up turning on uh, their sprinkler uh, to kind of repel her. Basically, it was this kind of like barbarians at the gate type of thing, and 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 you know they they're being really kind of clever and and and, and cheeky, uh, turning on the sprinkler from a from a remote control and, and and spraying her to get away. And you know, 55 plus Canadians like you know showed. 25%, 26% greater emotional connection to that spot than, than uh, the baseline average that we had calculated. Hmm, interesting. And, and did, you, did you get a reason then as to why? Well, yeah. So, so, so when we start to look at these types of themes, and, 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 and really it was the response to that spot that, that you know, kind of propelled our research forward. And we were like, okay, well, you know, why are people responding to this? And, and, and so we start looking at patterns. Right. We started looking at classical depictions of, of quote unquote, seniors uh, in the media and then looking at some of the other uh, depictions that would be, you know, closer to the themes and, and characteristics explored in Sprinkling. We start to understand, OK, well, actually, there's a huge spread here. So when, you know, uh, uh, 55 plus Canadians are, are, are depicted as frail and weak and, 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 and helpless and, and, and a little bit confused, you know, in, in advertising and media, we see, you know, huge withdrawals of, you know, double digit uh, attention level withdrawals, double digit connection levels with uh, withdrawals. These are the things that we're measuring from the brainwave uh, activity. And, and so, you know, what we're, what we're uh, I guess, concluding is that people are much more engaged, they're paying much more attention, they're resonating at much deeper levels, they're, they're remembering and encoding to memory um, so much more as it relates to you know, those themes and characteristics that, uh, that, that better reflect who they are and who they want to be. All right. Uh, it is definitely uh, interesting research. We'll have to leave it there. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate it.
Thanks for having me, Jill. Just before we get into this next topic, full disclosure, I love Granville Island. It is one of my favorite places in the city of Vancouver. And uh, that is why part of the reason why we are going to take some time to talk about this, because uh, one of the founding members of the Granville Island Cultural Society has written a letter about the future of the island and her concerns about that. And Alma Lee joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Uh, Alma, thank you so much uh, for being with us this morning. Good morning. Um, you, you're also a founder of the Writers' Festival, which uh, takes place uh, on Granville Island. I'm sure people uh, are familiar with that as well. Uh, you've written this letter saying that you are very concerned about the future of Granville Island. Uh, what are your concerns about it? Well, I'm very concerned that since the um, new manager came in, it's very difficult to understand to me what their mandate is, what her mandate is that she was given from Ottawa. I um, I fear that what they're trying to do is commercialize Granville Island, which would be absolutely disastrous in my opinion, and I'm sure you agree with me. I mean, I love Granville Island too. I've been involved in Granville Island since I founded the Writers' Festival. And it was me who wrote the letter, by the way, not the founder of the Cultural Society. Oh, I'm sorry. My mistake. That's okay. That's okay. Um, Anyway, I just... My other big concern is that they are seeking right now to to, um, install a new governance system, which supposedly is going to be more autonomous than the Granville Island Trust was, of which I was a member. And that really concerns me because, um, to me, it seems like an extremely huge conflict of interest that the manager of Granville Island is both on the 2040 Implementation Committee as its chair and also chairing the nominating committee. I mean, to me, that is a conflict of interest that an employee of Granville Island is helping to put this governance um, uh, council together who are supposed to be completely autonomous and have a little more control. I mean, to me, Granville Island should be a not-for-profit, should be run by some kind of not-for-profit society that has a, a board and a structure that instructs the manager what to do. I mean, the way it is right now, it's all top down. Right. Uh, and you mentioned, so your concerns that it's going to be uh, commercialized. So has something happened that, that leads you to have those concerns? Well, um, nothing except that places that are closed are not opening. The restaurant there, which has been closed for a year, not opening. The Emily Carr building is, you know, like a huge white elephant down there now. Um, There's a small print company close. Um, The cafe and the netloft closed. And there seems to be no attempts to open those places. So when you go down to Granville Island, there's just a sense of it not happening the way it used to always do. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go to Granville Island, I always get a sense that it's a happening place. 
And, it's and I don't get that sense of it now. I guess you st- I tend to think you still do you're around the market, uh, around that part of the island, but I, I think you raise some interesting points, right, when you go into the various other places, uh, not as happening. Uh, is it similar, do you think, uh, to, to other parts of the city, in that we see a lot of uh, empty stores on, say, Robson Street or other places, where, uh, and a lot of that uh, has to do with high taxes? Is that something that's hit Granville Island as well? No. Uh, no, Granville Island, uh, I mean, you may, you probably know this, but I mean, Granville Island was originally designed as a public park, an urban park for an experimenting in urban planning, architecture, education, arts and, arts and culture, light industry, business, food and entertainment. And it's, you know, it's, like 43 acres of federal public land in the middle of our city. And it's been, it was created for the most unique land loose vision imaginable. And, and it I, is, you're, you're right. I mean, there's a cement plant down there. there there's kind of a, a mishmash of different things. Uh, but so, so how do you see it changing then? Because, I mean, one of the changes I know people have talked about is that pay parking is going to be coming uh, to Granville Island. Uh, uh, what other changes do you do you suspect or do, are you fearful of coming to the island? But pay parking has always been on Granville Island. Right, but isn't all of the parking going to be pay parking? The, the, actually, that's the one positive thing that's <laughs> happened, interestingly enough. There was a whole study done last year about the parking and new parking uh, rules are going to be coming in, I think, in April or May. And they did a massive amount of consultation on it, and everybody is happy. It, what's going to happen is the, the, the parking will be free from 7 a.m. until 11 a.m. From 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., there will be pay parking. But there's pay parking right now in Randall Island. Right. But I think if you're if you're organized, you can do, get down there, do your shopping, and get out of there before it gets to be busy and before it, the pay parking kicks in. Uh, you wrote this letter uh, to the federal minister uh, in charge, the minister of I think it's families, children, and social development. Uh, have you had any reply? No, of course not. <laughs> So what do you do next with these concerns about the island? Well, I mean, what I'm doing next is things like this. I mean, I'm just talking it up as much as I can. Um, You know, I mean, there's already been a piece in the Georgia Strait and the Sun and the province. I was on CBC News. Um, So I'm trying to just get it out as much as possible that that, um, Granville Island needs our support. It needs people to be... Writing the kind of letter that I wrote, saying that you know, it, I mean, it's a it's the people's place, and the people should be up in arms about what's happening. But the problem is, when a person goes down there, they don't see that. They don't see the unhappy tenants, and uh, you know, because the tenants are not going to be talking to the public about how unhappy they are. No, that's very true. And in fact, I, I would say even the, the last few times I've been there, uh, people seem happy. It's been, and again, I've been more at the market area of it, but it seems happy and bustling. Uh, but uh, the, the concerns that you raise uh, clearly uh, are happening there as well. Yes. And, you know, I mean, people, 
there the people like for example there's one um there are a couple of artists down there they own a studio called IE Creative and if you're a fan of Granville Island you might remember them being right on the corner of Railspur Alley and um, Old Bridge Street and they often they were working on massive projects outside they do a lot of their work in stainless steel and they do huge public art projects commissioned and um, often they would working they would work outside so that people could see what they were doing now they're not allowed to work outside and in fact they're being renovated hmm. without any compensation to move their stuff and the the kind of they need hoists i mean they're making massive things where they need hoists to lift them up and you know they have a lot of um, heavy gear uh, to do their art and uh, Randall Island reneged on the rent, and now they're having to get out of there by the end of April with no compensation about moving their stuff. All right. Well, Alma, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there, but uh, we will talk about this again, I'm sure. Uh, thank you so much uh, for writing the letter and for coming on the show this morning. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. We are going to check in with Patrick Condon. He is the James Taylor Chair in Landscape and Livable Environments at the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, also the founding chair of the UBC Urban Design Program. And he is on the line with us now. Good morning. Good morning, Jill. Uh, you have written uh, a piece. Uh, this is uh, in the Tai again. Um, this piece takes a look at uh, planning effort, and uh, it sounds like a huge statement uh, that uh, to to take on the the uh, assertion that every planning effort Vancouver has taken in the past ten years has made things less affordable. Uh, maybe walk us through where that came from and your response to that. That was uh, a response to the work of Andy Yan, who's a uh done wonderful work looking at statistic evidence of many things in the city around planning. And in this case, he's showing that uh, all the areas that have been replanned in the city, including like the West End and Marpole and Grandview Woodlands uh, areas, the result has been that the land values have increased uh, very dramatically. And that has increased because the taxes have gone up on uh, rental units because the rental units have been assessed now at their higher and best use, which is at a, at a much higher rate, the uh, the rents have gone up as well. So, so it's 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 been counter counterproductive in terms of uh, uh, increasing affordability. It's gone in the opposite direction. It's increased land values, and uh, I've been long talking about land values as the real problem in the city. It's not so much that houses cost a lot; it's that land costs a lot, and the 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 speculation on land is the reason why things are getting so unaffordable. Uh, and, and we've certainly been seeing examples of that in the news uh, of uh, landlords saying their their old three-story walk-ups are being assessed as what they could be. Uh, the property taxes reflect that, and here they are still trying to uh, to rent out at the the what many would consider affordable rates, and they're caught in this uh, strange position. Yes, that's exactly right, Jill. That's what's happening in these neighborhoods, and it happens to be neighborhoods with most of the rentals in the city. So it's really, it's really tragic. Uh, so, so what's the alternative then? Uh, is it to not plan? Is it to leave things as is? No, uh, my uh, in in my article, I was suggesting that planning should be done, in fact, citywide, 
but the planning should put housing affordability first and foremost and should recognize that uh, land speculation is the problem here and that any increases in zoning should come uh, with a condition which is the provision of social benefit, some amount of housing pr- provided permanently for uh, people, for wage earners at uh, 30% of their their annual income as a condition of upzoning. And how do you how do we look at things or how do we kind of wrap our heads around things such as and you mentioned this in your piece, because anybody living uh, near where the new Broadway subway um, would be built in the future is already seeing their land value shooting up, uh, taxes shooting up. How is that something that that helps affordability or or is even uh, even okay? Yeah, that's really the the conundrum that everybody faces. And it's why I've one of the reasons I've long been arguing that we need a distributed system for uh, transit, not a, not a big pipe strategy of the Broadway subway. Uh, infrastructure provision changes the value of land as well. And uh, counterintuitively, putting uh, transit, which you would want to be available for your wage earners and low-income people, actually forces them further away from those new transit investments. So... I would argue that the very expensive Broadway subway should be uh, replaced by something more affordable, which wouldn't have that mo- that very dramatic effect on land values, and make sure that any housing that's built along that line was affordable for people. But if you're fighting against huge increases in land value, that, that can't be done. Uh, right. And as you mentioned as well, uh, we've seen that over and over again in the city. I mean, if you look even at uh, the Canada line or if you look at the the the, um, the building along Canby, certainly uh, the land values there have gone up uh, hugely. Yeah, they've gone up hugely. So anybody who drives down Canby Street will be able to see the evidence of that uh, with unaffordable condominiums being built built all along the line so forcing people who are of lesser means further and further away from that transit infrastructure and the uh and the most uh, outrageous example is at uh, 41st and uh and uh, can be at the new uh, oak ridge project where condominium is being sold for over two thousand dollars per square foot which means that a one bedroom is far over it's being sold for far over one million dollars how much of that, though, as well, is uh, is not just the the price of the land. It's also the permitting process in Vancouver, which takes a very long time. It's the amount of fees that go on to a, a one unit uh, that, that are so huge that add to the cost of these uh, units. Yeah, that's been UDI's contention. And I think that there are issues of permitting and processing that need to be improved. But it turns out that the land value is the is the real is the real big big item because uh, when a developer does the development, they figure out how much they can sell a square foot of land, of, uh, of of condo for, and then they subtract everything else, including the fees, and that gives a resi- what they call a residual value of the land. So the so so the more the more it costs to build the building and uh, permit the building, the less they give for the land. But under the present uh, market circumstances, even after those costs, the value of the land is unbelievably high. So it's the value of the land where the that's where the real 
where the real money is in, in, the, in the city of Vancouver. It's not so true when you get out to the other communities, but in the city of Vancouver, land value is really out of control. Uh, so is the focus, do you think, as well, when we talk about things like the Broadway subway or these big projects in the city of Vancouver? Um, I mean, it's not, it's not unique to Vancouver that the farther you get away from the downtown core, the more the, the, least, the, the, the expenses go down, the, pri- the price goes down. So should the focus, do you think, be more on helping people use transit or are able to access the city if you can't live in the city, uh, like many other places, at least you have easy access from where you can live? Well, obviously that's a concern. People, people need mobility, and the, and the government has a, a, a role in all of that. But under present circumstances, it's op- operating in the opposite direction. The, the more infrastructure we put in for transit for people, the further people get pushed out of where they need to be, and the more the more they have a demand for transit. It's it's op- operating in the opposite way that it should be, and this is why uh, uh, thinking about how to do transit in a way that doesn't skyrocket uh, land values, so that people, so that wage earners are able to live closer to where they work, which is the opposite of what's happening now, really needs to be done. That's why. My recommendation for the city of Vancouver is a distributed network for for transit, as well as thinking about density increases, not just giving away that value to landowners every time you raise density allowances, but rather recapturing uh, the value of that density increase for social purposes. Uh, do you think landlords get a bad rap in this in that, yes, there are some bad landlords, there are some bad tenants, but it seems to be, I mean, landlords are, are in some scenarios here stuck in the middle of all of this. And I mean, their job is to make money. They're providing housing, but they're not, they're not running a charity. Uh, do they get a bad, a bad uh, swipe from this? Yeah, they really do. The lands get a bad, bad swipe. Uh, and so do the developers. But what, what is really happening now is good landlords are having their uh, are, are having their doors knocked on by by land speculators who offer them much higher prices for their older buildings, uh, and the the land speculators are buying the older buildings knowing that they can they can renovate uh, people out of those buildings and get much higher rates or tear them down for condominium development. That's that's actually the problem here. It's the land speculators that are that are the issue, not the landlords. All right. Well, Patrick, uh, we will leave it there. A very interesting piece uh, in the Taiyi. Thank you so much for joining Thank us again. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are going to take a little bit more time to talk about what is happening with the SNC-Lavalin and what we have seen unfold in the past few days. Certainly no shortage of things to talk about there. Terrence Corcoran has written about this in the National Post, in the uh, Financial Post, and he joins us now to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Terrence, thank you so much for being with us. No trouble. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the headline of this piece, uh, SNC-Lavalin would get a deal anywhere else, so why not here? Uh, why, why do you think they should get a deal? Well, it's hard to tell whether they should or should not. What we don't know is what the reasons are for not giving them a deal. All we have uh, is the decision, the final decision, which is to take the, take the, the company to court, uh, and uh, why we picked that alternative rather than a DPA, nobody has a clue. Uh, and that, I think, is a big missing element in this. And uh, we don't know who made the decision, when they made the decision, why they made the, the decision. I've seen uh, reports uh, of different, uh, uh, different versions, but we don't know. And I think we should know because it seems to me that it's a perfectly 
reasonable alternative to going to trial. And there's no reason to force the company into trial from, from what we know. Do we take a bit of a leap of faith, though, and think that when Jody Wilson-Raybould, acting as the Attorney General, made the decision not to override uh, the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions, she knew? Well, we don't know uh, how to make whether to, how to judge that or not. Whether she, whether her reasons were good or bad, and unfortunately, it's shrouded in secrecy at the moment. Uh, and there's a, there's a story going around that the chief prosecutor on the case uh, was in favor, supposedly. I don't know if this is true or not. Supposedly, he was in favor. She was in favor of uh, 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 working out an agreement. But the director of the prosecution office apparently overrode the chief prosecuting officer, and presumably uh, Jody uh, Raybould Smith, uh, Raybould Wilson, uh, uh, went along with the director of the prosecution office. But we know we don't know any of this. We don't know what's true and what's not. We don't know what the facts are. We don't know what the reasoning is. And from my observation of SNC. And they appear to have gone through a, a, a significant reorganization. All kinds of executives have been cleared out. Uh, people have been let go. There are court cases against individuals. Uh, it's beyond me as to why we wouldn't have allowed them to reach a defined uh, prosecution agreement, especially since in the United States in particular, they don't do trials. They don't take companies to trials companies to trial, they uh, uh, take them through uh, a, a, an agreement in which they work out fines, and there have been 300 such cases taken that have taken place. Really large corporations have gone before, uh, or gone through the process, rather, and it works in the U.S. It apparently works in the U.K., from what I've been able to find out. And uh, it's very rare for companies to be taken to court. Individuals are taken to court. Individuals are charged. Managers, consultants, and other sleazy characters who uh, uh, are found guilty of having acted badly. It's uh, really difficult to take a corporation to court. Uh, which I suppose might uh, might uh, be, sit okay with people if if the individuals are are dealt with uh, the individuals who perhaps who are accused of breaking the law if they have broken the law uh, are punished accordingly because but otherwise doesn't it kind of give the impression even if they do this in the United States and in other countries uh, if a company with a history of corruption uh, such as SNC Lavalin is allowed to continue doing this and pay a fine then the fine simply becomes a cost of doing business and doing corrupt business. Well, I suppose that you can approach it that way, but uh, then you can judge the corporation as it goes along, uh, I suppose. But it seems to, as have other companies, uh, uh, amended its ways, in, at least to some degree. Uh, and there's no reason to believe from what uh, the company has said, from what has been reported on the reorganizations that they've gone through. They've set in procedures. They've changed methods. And they've done what all the other companies have done in the United States, presumably. They've all done it. I mean, you know, it's corporations are complicated organizations. Uh, and I, but the other thing is it serves no purpose to take them to trial. I don't understand what the purpose is. Was it not a deterrent to not do that in the future? Well, it, it might be, I suppose. But uh, it seems to me there's plenty of deterrence around in terms of corporate behavior right now. Uh, against uh, uh, against bribing and, and engaging in corrupt practices. 
But if that was the case, then we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Well, no, these, uh, the, the, you know, this, the, these bribery uh, anti-corruption laws are very new. Uh, you know, I've done, done a bit of research into the history of bribery and corruption, and my God, it goes back centuries. And until the 20th, 20th century, which is about halfway through the last century, uh, it was more than common for companies uh, and for corrupt practices to take, to take place, and not just amongst corporations. You know, if you've got a corrupt uh, event taking place, there's a receiver of the corruption, uh, whether it's uh, some uh, corrupt dictatorship in Libya or corrupt uh, officials in bureaucracies in, con- in countries all over the world. Uh, corruption has been the norm, and in some countries it's... I'm not defending it, I'm just saying that's the way it was. And we've only recently gotten into the business of prosecuting corporations, our corporations in Western societies, for practicing, engaging in corrupt practices in foreign, uh, in, in foreign lands, which is a new thing that was developed by the United States and later by the OECD. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that corrupt things do take place in Canada and that it appears... You know, in Quebec, that the uh, in between the Jacarty Bridge and the hospital, uh, some pretty ridiculous things are going on that are actually quite shocking. But my understanding, my impression is, and my and I have no brief with SNC, for FNC, SS, whatever the name of the company is, SNC. But it seems to me that they've they've gone beyond that. Uh, and in any case, they're not being tried for that. They're being the, the trial was about the, these activities involving uh, the, the, the the Libyan dictator Gaddafi, and uh, you know he's dead, and he was you know he's dead on killed on the streets of uh, of his country. Right, but but a couple of things there. Even if they have cleaned house, if they've dealt with people that perhaps were were allegedly connected to uh, what the charges are, and the charges go back to 2015, uh, as you mentioned, trying to bribe uh, several public officials in Libya, including the dictator. Um, even if they've cleaned house since then, it's not as though you can break the law and then say, "Oh, but don't worry about uh, don't don't worry about trying me because I've cleaned up my act ever since." Yeah, well, I, I, there is a bit of moral hazard there. I, I guess I would have to agree on that. But the, if the corporation has changed, in other words, if you have the different people, uh, there are fifty thousand people working for for the for the company. Uh, not all of them involved in making decisions, obviously. But if you've cleaned house, uh, you've got a whole other bunch of other motivations for um, for not for not uh, engaging in corrupt practices including your stock price and the value of your company and your business dealings. Uh, it's not as if it's risk-free and you can just twaddle on. I mean, look what SNC share price is going through. Now, there's a great case that I wrote about the other day about the Siemens, which is the big German international conglomerate. Um, it ended up paying $1.6 billion in U- to, to the United States government and to the German government for its corrupt practices. It went through an agreement uh, it took two years to negotiate it. Uh, it's obvious, and it became apparent that the company uh, had engaged in corrupt um, business dealings all over the world. Uh, but everybody seems fairly content now that it's been cleaned up. That's 10 years ago that they reached this agreement. Uh, and I don't see why the same thing couldn't be done uh, in Canada under SNC. Because uh, you, who are you punishing when you punish a corporation? What exactly are you accomplishing? 
you're punishing the shareholders, you're punishing uh, other employees, you're punishing uh, clients of, uh, of SNC who may end up getting knocked around because SNC has trouble signing, getting business. You know, there's all kinds of things that are being, innocent people are being dragged into to a court case. No, and I, and I agree with you. You can't, you can't really punish a corporation. The only thing you can do is punish people associated with the corporation. You can break the corporation up, which serves a ridiculous purpose in my view. It's so you end up with other people owning parts of the company or all of the company. But so what? You just, you've, you've changed shareholders, uh, uh, and uh, a bunch of shareholders lost money, and the people who were able to buy it cheap will end up making money. Uh, and I agree with you on on the the point of the workers, and it is unfair that no, an employee. It's not just the workers. I, it's not just the workers. I mean, there are shareholders, uh, clients, customers, uh, and the employee employees are not just workers. There's a whole bunch of sophisticated, technical, uh, competent engineers and what have you, uh, contractors. There's all kinds of people involved in the company that that, that are just being dragged into this. Uh, you know, the company CEO said the other day they, they're, they're, they're tired of being a political football. Uh, and uh, certainly I, I can understand why. Sure. But but again, and you mentioned the Siemens case, which you've written about, and that that billion dollar plus uh, fine that they that they were given uh, did hurt the company. It, it, it hurt the company very much. But but again, if, if the fine isn't enough or if it, it's a fine that then becomes the cost of doing business, does it not send a message to these huge companies? Continue bribing, continue being well, corrupt. But, but the, You're no, not, we're I, not going to go after you. I understand, but, Jane, but, but the same thing would happen with the trial. What is what is the trial uh, going to produce? It's going to produce some kind of penalty, and the only thing you can get out of a company is money. So you're going to have another fine. So the same thing is going to apply. Just what, what the company wants to avoid, A, is the long, uh, dramatic, tedious process of a trial, which is unbelievably expensive. Uh, in terms of what it costs to 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 work to to uh, to, to run these things, uh, and um, and at the end of the trial, the, the only thing the judge can do, you can't send more people to jail. Presumably, people because nobody's being charged uh, on a, in a criminal conviction in in, in a criminal process because it's not against individuals; it's against the com- company. The only penalty, as far as I can see is to extract a, uh, a fine of some kind, which is exactly what a DPA would do, except it does it in a more reasonable way, more systematic way, and for all we know, might even be more thorough because it can be a little more, it can be arbitrarily made more broad than it can in a court case, which will be, will be narrowly focused on, from my reading of the uh, of the uh, couple of the documents, it's narrowly focused on the Libyan affairs. True. All right. Uh, Terrence, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you so much. Appreciate your time this morning. Okay. Great to talk to you. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye.